But we're back in our last chapter of the book of Revelation, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 22. And please do not expect to finish this evening. Just, just a warning, just letting you know. Uh, I, uh, I realize that we have spent, you know, the better part of two years um, going through this book, and we have made it quite an in-depth study, so why change that in the last chapter? Uh, you know, okay, we're in heaven, it's really nice and pretty, and let's go home. You know, it's, uh, that's not what we want to do. We want to look very carefully at this last chapter, because in, indeed it is that last opportunity that, that John had to not only see the glory of, of what God had restored, but to make it very clear to us of the importance of it for today. Now that part we'll get to, of course, in the next couple of weeks. But tonight we're, we're walking into this city. And uh, it's amazing how we know that our God came, you know, comes from an eternal perspective, of course, in that he's always been, was never created. And so he lives in the eternal time continuum. And, and we, when he created us, began a new time continuum just for us. Now, he's able to go between both time and space continuums. Uh, we will be able to cross over that when Jesus comes for us, but until then, of course, we're stuck in this time continuum. And uh, if, if you've spent any time with us in the book of Genesis, which we're not going back to for a while, but uh, if you spend any time with us, we, you realize that from the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, that uh, once man fell, then everything began to die. There was a curse placed upon the earth because of sin. So we fell from a perfect environment into a, an environment that was now bound to the second law of, of thermodynamics, which means everything is wearing away, everything is wearing down. That's just a very simplistic uh, definition, but you all remember when we studied it, I mean, things are, are winding down. But time continues on. What's strange to me sometimes, though, is when, when I consider time, it's moving a lot faster than it was 40 years ago. Those of you who might remember 40 years ago. It's moving a lot faster, it seems. The, the seconds don't change. Minutes don't change. Hours don't change. Days don't change. Weeks don't change. Months don't change. Years don't change, except for one thing. It just seems going faster. And it's, and it's winding down awfully speedily. And it's, it's amazing that we are living in a time that was spoken of by the prophets and by the apostles, especially Paul and John, who realized that we were living in very, very dangerous situations. It was prophesied, and it's happening. But it was dangerous back 2,000 years ago when the church began. 
but it's more dangerous now. So when we look at this last chapter of the book of Revelation, we want to look at it from the standpoint of the hope that we have in what's to come. Now, we began that, of course, in chapter 21, as we started entering into that eternal time continuum, at least in looking at it from John's perspective, as he saw the vision that God was giving him of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So now, as we get into chapter 22, we continue on in, in, our, in our tour. We're, we're going through this tour now of what's to come. And in verse 1 it says, And he showed me a, a, a pure river, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. Now remember that we've used that phrase before, clear as crystal. I mean, that, that means that it's, it's, it's so clear you can see through it and, 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 and there's a beauty to seeing, seeing through it, just like you see through the, through the walls the, the, of gold, the streets of gold and, and everything else. Clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so this river is coming from the throne of God. In the middle of its street, we're, we're just, we just walked inside. But in the middle of this street, on, and on either side of the river, was a tree of life. Now that, it, That's hard to picture. I mean, on either side, but in the middle of the street, but on either side of the river was the tree singular of life, which, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Each tree. So the tree is more than just a tree, but it's a tree. Please don't ask me to explain that. I, I really want to see this. But I don't really want to, you know, call Timothy Leary and try to get some, you know, whatever he was into back in the 60s to see things like that. I don't understand it, but I can sure trust that it's going to be this way. It bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's an interesting thing. We'll get back to that in a moment. And there shall be no more curse. Now, what did we start with? We talked about a curse after the creation when man fell and sinned because of the temptation given by the serpent to the woman and, of course, to the man as well. But a curse came, and the curse was of sin and death. But there's no more curse. Uh, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. there they need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord, give, uh, the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, there's a lot there. Of course, we're going to cover that tonight. But there's a lot there. I told you before, artists' conceptions of all of this, is, I mean, just as weak as can be, but there's a tree. We're going right down the middle of the street, but on either side, there's trees, and, and who knows what. So, again, we can't trust in that kind of stuff, but, you know, it kind of gives us a, a little idea. You know, there's color there, there's gold, there's green. Okay, so over the past few weeks, as we talked about, we've crossed through our time-space continuum into the infinite. And we've gone through the future events, or we've gone through the future events, into a time where there is a new heaven and a new earth, and the very centerpiece of all eternity will be a city called the New Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was given this great tour and shown around the outside 
of this new Jerusalem by an angel. But as we enter into the last chapter of the book of Revelation, we're going to, we're actually given a peek at what is on the inside. So we're now looking on the inside of the new Jerusalem. And the first thing that John has shown is this river. And so when you look at verse 1, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We all know the importance of water, especially here in the desert in which we live. We know the importance of water. Joseph Seiss, who wrote in his commentary on Revelation entitled The Apocalypse, he wrote this. He said, one of the gladdest things on earth is water. One of the gladdest things on earth is water. There is nothing in all the world so precious to the eye and imagination of the inhabitant of the dry, burning, and thirsty east as a plentiful, plentiful supply of bright, pure, and living water. Certainly many of the world's great cities were built along rivers, great rivers, of course. For example, Alexandria, Egypt, along the Nile, Paris, France, along the Seine, London, England, along the Thames, Rome, Italy, along the Tiber, and Vienna, Austria, along the Danube, El Paso, Texas, along the Rio Grande. But most of these and other major cities, not including El Paso, but most of these and other major cities were founded hundreds if not thousands of years ago, and in those times, major rivers were vital for transport. They were vital for trade, as well as vital for defense. And until the birth of the railway, boats were the only way to shift goods economically in a, in a, in a larger way. I mean, there were other ways, of course. But until the railway came into being, boats were the only way to shift goods economically. Now, as these settlements were the center of commerce, they grew and they grew and are today, again, our, our major cities. Our heavenly home, the new Jerusalem, will feature a great river. But for none of those reasons... Not for one of those reasons does this river exist. Seiss went on to write something that ties the whole of Scripture together in renewal, in restoration, and even revival. He said this, he said, Paradise itself was not complete without it. Speaking of the river. Paradise itself was not complete without it. Hence, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads, rolling their bright currents over golden sands and sparkling gems. There, picturing Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, as if meant to water and gladden all of the earth. A city without water would be a most disconsolate and unpleasant thing. And therefore we see cities at the greatest pains to provide themselves with water, and those are reckoned the best which are the most happily watered. The point is this. There was a river, and there will be a river. 
There was a river in the Garden of Eden. And there will be a river in the New Jerusalem. Paradise, in other words, will be regained. That's what ties it all together from Genesis to Revelation. There was a river, there is a river. But there is so much more to understand about this river. Jesus likened the Holy Spirit, by the way, to a river, didn't he? When he said in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, he said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now notice, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the river of water of life that we see in the New Jerusalem, the river of water of life is a physical representation of the life-giving ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to understand the conclusion of that statement here in just a moment. I'm going to make it again. The river of water of life is a physical representation of the life-giving ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke these words about the Holy Spirit at a particular time. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. As it's also known as Sukkot, which means booths. The feast commemorated God's miraculous preservation of the nation of Israel during the 40 years the people wandered in the wilderness. God commanded His people to build booths outside their homes during the feast. They would mostly make these booths out of palm thatches and and the family would move out, move out of their house and into these booths during the feast. They actually do that still to this day in many places. Now for the first seven days of the eight-day feast, the temple priests in Jerusalem would march in procession down many steps with large water jugs on their shoulders to the pool of Siloam in the Kidron Valley. There they would fill their jugs and they would make a solemn procession back up the steps and into the temple courtyard where thousands of people would gather to worship God. Now, as the, as the priest entered the courtyard, the people would break forth in singing the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms were the songs that begin and end with Hallelujah, which means praise God. As the people sang and worshipped the Lord, the priests poured out the water on the pavement. It was a reminder of how God brought water out of the rock when their fathers were dying of thirst in the wilderness. And they remembered how Moses took a rod and he struck the rock according to the commandment of God and how life-giving water came gushing out of the rock. Now in the book of Numbers... That event wasn't without consequence to Moses and Aaron, since in that, in, in that location there, in, in the book of Numbers, uh, uh, the Lord had told Moses to speak to the rock, and instead he struck it twice. Nonetheless, God brought forth water. Now, on the last day, getting back to the feast, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, the priests did not make a procession to the pool of Siloam, nor did they pour out water on the pavement. This was done, in, in other words, not doing it, 
was done to signify that God had kept His promise to their fathers. He preserved them in the wilderness and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. A well-watered land where they no longer needed water to gush miraculously out of rocks. So it was on this day, the eighth day, as the people were gathered to worship the Lord, that Jesus stood and cried to the thousands of worshipers in the courtyard. And if you're still in John chapter 7, go back to one verse, verse 37, where Jesus said this. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Doesn't it make a lot of sense when you know a little bit of the background of that story? That it was on that day when they don't go down to get water that he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As if to say that even all of the Feast of the Tabernacles and everything that went on really always and should point to Jesus Christ, who is the rock who provides everything that we need for life and godliness and especially the water of life. So Jesus was talking about the human thirst for God. Deep down in the spirit of every man resides an unquenchable need for God. Now I can say that very confidently because when we, and we do this a lot, and we're not going to do it right now, but when you go back to Romans chapter 1, I'll always take you back there and let you know that down deep inside of everybody, there is the knowledge of God, no matter whether a person calls themselves an atheist or not. God should know because He created each one. So down in every spirit of every man resides this unquenchable need for God. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes in chapter 3, verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now that's a beautiful verse in itself, that part of the verse. But listen to what he goes on to say. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. No one on their own, no one by themselves. You have to come to God. But the point is, he put eternity into their hearts, into our hearts. So without many even knowing that they are crying out, yearning for a meaningful relationship with God. Problem is that so many people have sought God in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of circumstances, and they look at a lot of things and think that might just be God. That was the problem, of course, with the children of Israel because they were told there is a God. You can't see Him, but don't make any images because He doesn't have an image that we can see. But they saw all these people that were worshiping wood, hay, and, and uh, no, wood, hay, and stubble. They were, well, I think they might have, but they were worshiping wood and, and, and stone and, and all kinds of other stuff. So people are crying out, yearning for a meaningful relationship with God because the reality is that we are not complete without Him. We are not complete without God and we are not complete without Jesus Christ. But as believers, we are. As believers in Christ, we are. Because Paul says in Colossians 2 verses 9 and 10, For in Him, Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. 
So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are complete in Christ. You no longer have that missing piece. You're not like those gifts you get at Christmas that say uh, uh, batteries not included. You'll get the batteries now. As a matter of fact, you get a battery that's a lot better than the Energizer Bunny. Because he'll die out eventually, but nothing dies out that God gives us. Especially Jesus. He's already been there. He's already died, but he's risen again. And he'll never die again. He'll never be crucified again. He will always be God, the second person of the Trinity. He will always be that. And we are complete in him. You see, when Jesus said, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He used a Greek word for flow that is quite dynamic. It means to gush. And then the word that he used for rivers is the Greek term for torrents. And so a more accurate translation would be, out of his innermost being, there will gush forth torrents of living water. Now, folks, that's the way we are to be as believers in Jesus Christ. That out of us comes forth this torrent or this gushing river of living waters. What Jesus was talking about was the subjective and personal experience of salvation. Please write that down if you're taking notes. What Jesus was talking about was the subjective and personal experience of salvation. Using similar language, Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria, in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, He said, Jesus answered her and and, and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, speaking of the water of that well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Look at that. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Yes, you get to answer questions tonight. Into everlasting life. Salvation. But it's not just, listen, it's not just to fill us that the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a gushing torrent. It's not just for us. Remember that Jesus said it would flow out of those who believe. He he was also talking about serving the Lord and serving others. So not only are these uh, uh, gushes and and, and torrents of living water coming out uh, just tied into salvation, it's also tied into service. So remember, write that down too. Salvation and service. It's not only helping us, certainly, but then they are to flow out of us. This is clear. That every believer in Jesus Christ has been given the call to tell others about Jesus. You see, the Spirit isn't to be bottled up inside of believers just to bless us. I think some people think that. But it's just not the case. 
The Spirit isn't to be bottled up inside of us just to bless us. The Lord wants to release His Spirit through us to bring Jesus to others. Do you know that if you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, God used people to bring that message to you? See? No? Maybe so? Yes, He used people to bring the message to you. It just didn't like hit you on the head, you know, on the head while you're walking down, you know, Santa Fe Street or whatever. And, and, and then all of a sudden this brick from heaven hits you and then you pick it up and it says, Wow, Jesus is Lord, I better receive him as my Lord and Savior. No. Someone spoke to you the words of life. And it might have been that early on you might have rejected that message. I know I did. Because I thought I was a pretty good person. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't run over anybody. Didn't shoot anybody. Didn't steal from anybody. Well, I don't know, maybe a paper clip here and there, you know, something like that. But I didn't do anything weird. But someone showed me that the Scripture says, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if left to that, where would I be? Until they went on to say, but God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, how that sets you free when you realize that He died for you individually and personally as well as for many but on that one day when someone shared the gospel with you it was as if it was just you I think the Lord allows that for us to realize the world could be moving at a fast pace around us but right there time stops for a moment so that we can hear the precious gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, that's why Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8 to to everyone, the disciples, you know, waiting for the promise of the Spirit. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the uttermost part of the world, of the earth. You shall be witnesses to me and of me. All right. And so, when we are in the new Jerusalem and see the river that proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb, what should it remind us of? It will remind us of both our salvation and our service to God. And I believe that we have this passage here in the Scriptures for us to know that we should be thinking about that even now. That one day we will see that river. And we will know what those gushing torrents of water were all about.
In verse 2 of our text, it says, In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river. I like the phrase, in the middle of its street. It's, it's, it's almost as if there's only one street. In the middle of its street. You ever been to one of those small towns that doesn't even have a stoplight? But there's people there, you know, because there's buildings there. And you stop your car sometime and you go around the side of the building to make sure it's not just a front like, the, you know, in Hollywood. Because you say, man, I don't think there's anybody here, but there's buildings. And there's a place there called Eat at Joe's or something like that. And the menu is a sandwich and apple pie and ice cream and a cup of coffee that doesn't taste real good. But that's the city you go to. That's just one little street. And then, you, you know, before you blink your eyes, you're already out of it. Not this city. You can't blink your eyes here. Your eyes won't even close. You'll be in such amazement at what you see. But there in the middle of, of its street, on either side of the river, was, was the tree of life. Do you know that, and I know that this goes all the way back to when we were studying Genesis chapter, chapter 3, but just as a reminder, you, you know that when, when man fell, that an angel, an angel was to protect the tree of life from man. And it wasn't so much to keep man from the tree of life, it was to keep man from eating the fruit and living forever in his sin. That was the reason. Had he eaten of the tree of life at that point, after having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and discovering the fact that he was now a sinner because he had disobeyed God, to have eaten from that tree, God was merciful to keep them from it because they would have died eternally in their sins. or Well, died, but they would have lived forever in their, in their sin. What a merciful God we have. So the tree was not taken away, you know, taken out of the ground, uh, you know, rooted out, and so we're not going to mess with that tree anymore. No, 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 it was protected. And now we found it again. And it's in the city, the new Jerusalem, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were the, for the healing of the nations. So, once again, we go back to Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the test given to Adam and Eve was that of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we all know that they failed. By the way, what kind of tree was it? Actually, Genesis doesn't say, and nowhere does... Does, does it ever mention that it was an apple tree? A lot of people think it was just an apple, you know, the first thing that comes to mind. I'll give you a little history about that. A uh, long, long time ago, it was, it was actually written into some Latin translations that it was an apple tree because the word for apple was um, malum, M-A-L-U-M, but it was also the word that was used for evil. So it just came to be that uh, apple was considered an evil fruit because of its connection to the, to the name. And therefore, in some places, the word apple in the Latin was, was placed in the place of, of, of the tree, or the fruit, I should say, fruit. Uh, 
But it doesn't really say that in the Hebrew. So the best guess scenario about what the fruit was is that the fruit was probably fig. It was probably a fig. Now, I would have liked to have seen the figs then because I've seen, you know, when my mom had a, a fig tree, I used to have to, every summer, I had to pick, you know, figs off the tree and get all itchy and scratchy because, man, I couldn't understand, you know, how Adam and Eve could wear fig leaves because it was just so itchy and scratchy. You know, but, but there, you know, so I'm picking figs and there was about this, they were, you know, about an inch and a half. And sometimes they were about two inches big, you know, but, and, and pretty tasty and stuff. But, and I saw bigger ones, but I can imagine in the Garden of Eden, you know, the, for them to have taken a fruit that was so luscious and rich for them to want to have, they must have been about this big, you know. Maybe the size of a papaya, man, that's the biggest fruit, I, a fig I would have ever seen. But, there was, you know, but the best case scenario here is that the, the fruit was probably a fig because we're told that after they ate of the tree that they saw their nakedness and they sold the fig leaves together. So it may be. I'm not saying. You know, later on, what does Israel uh, get uh, likened to? Uh, the fig tree. Uh, the fig tree is a, a type, you see. So, I mean, it's, 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 inter- it's an interesting thing. Um, but we're told that after they ate of that tree, you know, they, they, they had the fig, fig leaves, so they... Uh, put that on. Obviously not, uh, uh, you know, fashion-minded, but uh, anyway. They'd be easy to find those if you're eating figs, so that, that's, that's why I brought that up. But in the New Jerusalem, got to get out of those things. I don't know what happened to me. In the New Jerusalem, it is the tree of life that will be flourishing. The tree of life will be flourishing. Now the question is, is it going to be one tree or several? Because we've already kind of had to deal with that. Uh, it appears to be several, and yet one. It appears to be several, and yet one. Now, that's not uncommon, is it? We have one God in three persons. We have a nation called Israel, who is considered, uh, you know, to be of many, yet they're one. Now, why bring that up? Because one of the symbols of Israel is uh, the, 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 gla- the, the uh, I'm sorry, the grape cluster that was considered one that was found by um, uh, Joshua and, and Caleb, you know, and they're, they're, they're the ones holding this big, huge cluster of humongous grapes, you know, but, but the cluster was called one. And Echod, uh, you know, in the, in the Hebrew, you know, when, when we talk about uh, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echod, when, you know, our God is one, it, it's one, but it's, it's a composite one. Or, uh, so so it's, it's made up of so many, but yet one. So this is something that's not strange then to the biblical understanding. It appears to be several, yet it's one tree. A row of trees of life on either side of the river, yet it's one tree. We, we find something of this just, uh, just like this in Jerusalem during the millennial period, the thousand-year reign of Christ before uh, the eternal uh, time. Ezekiel 47, verse 12, it's a long, long verse, so there's two slides for it. Along the bank of the river, now this again is a description of, this, uh, of the millennial city of Jerusalem, which is on the earth. It says, along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Again, uh, there is the... The similarity of the, the, the throne of, uh, in, in, in the Jerusalem on earth will have a river flowing from it. 
Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. And uh, just hold that thought for a minute because I believe that we'll, we'll see a, a better understanding of, of the fruit for medicine in just a moment, or the leaves for medicine, I should say. So John is describing eternity in, in the New Jerusalem in chapter 22 after the thousand years is completed. This is during the thousand years, which is what Ezekiel is, is showing us. But once again, the tree of life points to the restoration of all things and the creation, especially man, may return now and enjoy the blessing for which he was at one time banished. He was banished from the fruit of the trees of, of, of the garden. They were kicked out of the garden. No longer were they just to be able to go in and pick the fruit and enjoy it. Now they had to work for it. What was it that God told Adam? You know, now Adam, you're going to have to, you're going to, you're going to be sweating. You're going to have to work. Plow the land. I'm going to put you where you're going to need to do these things. So no longer would they have access to the beauty and the beautiful fruit of that garden. But now in the millennial kingdom first, and then in the, in the, uh, uh, in the eternal kingdom in, in the new Jerusalem, all that will change. The mention that each tree will yield its fruit every month suggests that even in eternity, heaven will still mark time, but probably not be subject to it the same way that we are on this side of eternity. So there's still time that goes on in eternity, but in a totally different way that, than, than we do now. So I, I don't understand that, because I'm bar- I barely can understand the time continuum I'm in right now. Especially with alarm clocks and, and, and all. I, I can barely understand that. But one day there will be a time frame, but we won't understand it like we will then. We don't understand it now. And then a few questions arise from this passage. First of all, will we eat in heaven? Well, there's trees with fruit. Will we eat in heaven? When I say heaven, I'm talking about the New Jerusalem, because that's where we will reside. Will we eat in the New Jerusalem? Well, the best answer can be given is uh, that uh, we can we can eat, but will not have to. You can eat if you want, but you don't have to. Now, isn't that wonderful? You can eat if you want. That's my problem today. I can eat if I want, but, you know, I shouldn't (laughs) all the time. But then, you know, I can eat if I want, but I don't have to eat because I'm going to be in in an eternal body. Now, that's not a problem, really, in the Scriptures. Because um, Jesus, in His resurrected body, enjoyed food in Luke 24, you know, on the road to Emmaus. And even after, uh, after His resurrection up in the Sea of Galilee, you know, and He was making breakfast for the disciples, I'm sure He sat there and ate with them. They, they all were blessed to have Him with Him. Angels, by the way, ate with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, right before... The angels had come to bring destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah. Even the great heavenly reunion between Jesus and His people. What we studied in the book of Revelation. What is it called? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Aren't you glad it doesn't say the marriage diet of the Lamb? I mean, come on. I mean, I'm so, I'm so glad. Supper. Hey, I like supper. Now just think about this. Man fell by what he ate, didn't he? Man fell by what he ate. In heaven we will be restored to eat rightly. Yes. 
Yes. Second question, why do the nations need healing? Because it talks about the healing for the nations. That's an interesting question. But the Greek word for healing really gives us clarification. The Greek word is therapeion, from which we get the English words therapy or therapeutic. The word is literally translated as health-giving. Health-giving. The, the, the leaves, in other words, the whole idea behind these leaves is, is to promote the enjoyment of life in heaven. To promote the enjoyment of life in the new Jerusalem. Something, and you have to understand this, something that nations have never been able to achieve or accomplish from the beginning of time after the fall. All we have ever seen was nations rising against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms. And Jesus talked about it later on that in the last days, that's what was going to be happening. Nations were, would rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. But in a greater sense than in all of the history of man. Yet the history of man makes it very clear that all man has ever done was find a way to fight against each other. It's not going to happen anymore. True shalom is going to take place in heaven. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne. The Lamb of God is on the throne at the right hand of His Father. And, and the Father and the Son are just the light of this whole earth. Or, or I should say the light of this whole city. Everything's changed. There's going to, there's no more curse in the new Jerusalem. Which means there's no more sin. There's no more hatred. There's no more violence. There's no more abuse. There's no more murder. None of those things. There is a time that the nations will play a role in these times. Nations will still exist. That's very clear from the scripture. Psalm 22 verse 27 says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Is that happening today? No, not at all. Will it happen then when, it, when, when the Lord comes? And when the Lord establishes His kingdom, yes. To some degree, forcefully on the earth, but in, the, but in heaven? It's all done. It's all gone. All of sin has been taken care of. All of death is gone. Psalm 86, verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And I can say this, really, scripturally consistent with this thought is, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name in heaven, in earth, and under the earth. Because every knee shall bow in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And then when you read uh, Revelation 15, verse 4, it says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. All the judgment has been taken care of. Everything has been done. Nations that exist will worship the Lord. Lastly, we look together at verses 3, 4, and 5. I bet you thought we were only going to do two verses tonight. Verses 3, 4, and 5 together. And they do go together. and That's why we're studying them together. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. Every time I think of that one little phrase, they shall see His face. Down deep inside of my heart, I just say, Lord, I just want to see your face. I just want to see you. I'm tired of looking at everything else in this world. Yeah, I bet you thought I was going to say, I'm tired of looking at these faces in front of me. I wasn't going to say that. Yeah, you. <clears throat> but I'm tired of looking at everything in this world. I want to see your face now. I want to see your face. Folks, I'm not up here to talk about theory. I'm up here to tell you there's a person named Jesus and he's alive. And he's got a face and I want to see his face. And I want to spend my time with him. The good thing is we can spend our time with him now. But it's different. Because these eyes can't see him. But we will have eyes one day that will see him face to face. Uh, we shall see his face and his name shall be on our foreheads and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Since healing as we know it will no longer be necessary, John adds that there will no longer be any curse. You see, with a curse at, 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 uh, at the time of the fall of man... That brought in all kinds of stuff, all kinds of pain, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of diseases, all kinds of things that that kill us and hurt us. There's no more curse in heaven. And as the curse of Adam's sin led to illness requiring health and death, so in the state of eternity, the, the eternal state, there will be no curse. Therefore, no healing of illness will be necessary because there won't be any illness. And as mentioned previously, God the Father and the Lamb are in the new city. The new Jerusalem will be the temple of God. If you remember from verse 22 of chapter 21, and John writes that his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. Well, we're getting all that practice right now. This is OTJ. On-the-job training. Right now. We're called to serve Him. We're servants. That's what we're called as believers in Jesus Christ. We're bond servants. Doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. Bond slaves. I don't know where we get off. You know, we're called bond slaves, but we get off as if we're the masters. Now, some people are just, I mean, they just think that they got everything. I mean, oh, Lord, I mean, we're just the king's kids and we can drive around in big, you know, humongous 
limousines and where the... Hey, you're a slave. So get used to it. But in heaven, you're going to be a slave still. But a, but, but a happy one. You'll be happy slaves. Joyous slaves. Because you'll be serving the Most High God who saved us into eternity. The highest joy and privilege of the saints in eternity will be to serve their blessed Lord. Even though it is true that they will also reign with Him. And you know, we will reign with Him. But too many Christians act like spoiled brats. We need to humble ourselves. Because that's what the Scriptures tell us to do. Notice what it says. We will reign with Him. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, we will also deny us. So the good thing is, let's not deny the Lord. Revelation 5 verse 10 And have made, He has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's already happened. A thousand years have gone by now. And we reign with Him on the earth. They will have a privileged place before the throne, for they will see His face. The implication is that they are under the Lord's good favor. You can even say they're in, their, in His inner circle. But that's everybody. Nobody's going to be excluded in the city of New Jerusalem. This intimacy is also indicated by the fact that His name will be on their foreheads. Now, think about the contrast here. We talked about it back a few months ago, a couple of months ago, when we were dealing with the issue of, of the, uh, uh, the mystery Babylon uh, and, and uh, you know, the, uh, the mark of the beast, as it were, when we were talking about the Antichrist as well, and, you know, what that mark was. You know, we, we say it's a number. We, we also took time to look at an alternative. But today, there are people that are around the world wearing headbands and armbands that have all kinds of Islamic, Arabic symbols. Within those symbols lies that number 666. And the possibility exists that it isn't really a computer chip or it isn't just, uh, you know, some kind of a credit card number, whatever. But think about this. Who's the greatest Antichrist spirit today? Or what is the greatest Antichrist spirit today? And when they, when they gather together in such um, military ways, they all wear these headbands and armbands, and the, the very center of all of that says, Bismillah, in the name of Allah. They do everything that they do in the name of Allah. And those who follow Allah will tell you right now, God is not Father, there is no Son. But John tells us that the spirit of Antichrist says, they deny the Father and the Son. What more can we say? Where we live today, that's happening all around us. I'm not discounting that there could be, you know, chips put in, but, you know, we're not going to worry about that. First of all, we'll die if, if, we're, if faced with that, with that uh, decision, or we won't even be here at all, which is what the Scriptures lead us more toward. 
But the intimacy that we're going to have with God is indicating the fact that His name will be on our foreheads just as the 144,000 will be sealed. As it says in Revelation 14 verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his Father's name written on their foreheads. Look, you'll either, you either wear, you know, in the name of Allah, you wear Yahweh's name on your head. And the ones who wear Yahweh's name on their head, they're going to live forever. And we don't get that now so that we can, you know, be in that kind of war against these things. The war is already taking place. This is talking about in heaven. We will have his name on our, fa- on our foreheads. Darkness will be gone forever. God himself will be our light. Perfection and completeness is the hallmark of the heavenly eternal state. Let's look at it in this, in this, in this manner before we close. No more curse. That's restoration made perfect. Or perfect restoration. No more curse. Restoration is made perfect. Perfect restoration. From what? From the garden. Again, what God created at the beginning was good, and it was perfect. Secondly, the throne. The throne will be in the city. The throne speaks of administration, therefore administration is now made perfect. Administration in the millennial kingdom was perfect because Jesus sat on the throne in the city of Zion in Jerusalem and he sat there for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years, so came the the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells. This is perfect administration now. In contrast to any administration on this earth today. There is no perfect administration right now when man is in control, when man is in charge. Albeit that there might be those who trust in God and, and uh, surrender or submit their, their administrations to God, but the ones who don't, they're in trouble. Thirdly, as we said, servants shall serve, therefore, servanthood is made perfect. It'll be a perfect submission. As a matter of fact, that comes from an old hymn. Perfect submission. Perfect delight. Fourthly, we shall see his face. Our transformation is made perfect. Because we see we cannot see his face with these eyes. But our transformation will be so perfect that we will see him face to face. Our transformation is made perfect. And then his name on our foreheads, our identification is made perfect. Perfect identification with the God who created us. Perfect identification with the Christ who died for us and rose again for us. Perfect identification with the Spirit who gave us life and who keeps life 
going in us. God is the light. Therefore, illumination is made perfect. Everything is going to be clear. Nothing hidden. No darkness whatsoever. Reigning forever. Exaltation made perfect. Perfect exaltation. Closing with this thought concerning the importance of seeing his face. Let me end with the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. The last half of that great chapter on love. It begins with this thought. Paul said, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And we know that it's speaking of here and now. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. That, that's us today. What I'm doing here tonight, I, I can't give you the whole picture, the whole story. I'm doing my best to give you a little bit of a glimpse of what's going to happen, but we only know in part. And we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, now who is that? Jesus. So, so when that which is perfect is come, then, then that which is in part will be done away. And then he said this, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I would put away childish things. Well, I would hope that we did. For now we see in a mirror dimly. And here's the thing, right now we see dimly, we don't see everything clearly. We'd like to. There are some things in the Scriptures that are, that are very clear, so those we point out very, very clearly to you so that you can see them clearly, but for the most part in, in, in all of this life, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, then, then when He comes, the one who is perfect comes, we will see face to face. And now, today, I know in part, but then when it comes, I shall know just as I also am known in perfection. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And there's no greater expression of that love than the cross of Jesus Christ. What He did for you and for me. When we shall see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And whoever has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. First John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons of God. We shall be like him. That day's coming. Let's look for his return.
Let's pray.